Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, this is New Books in Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte, in New York. Today, we'll be speaking with Claudia Kalb, author of the new book, Andy Warhol Was a Hoarder, Inside the Mind of History's Great Personalities, published in 2016 by National Geographic Society. Claudia Kalb is an award-winning journalist who specializes in the fields of medicine, health, and science, and former senior writer at Newsweek and contributor to publications such as Smithsonian and Scientific American. I'm very glad to have her on the show. Welcome, Claudia. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us about the book and what inspired it. Well, I've always really enjoyed uh, the study of psychology and mental health. And I was a writer at Newsweek uh, for 17 years where I worked on many stories in the medical field. And mental health always rose to the top. Uh, Psychology, the mind, the brain this great universe um, that still is so um, not misunderstood all the time, but just still needs so much exploration. What, what's going on in there? And I really wanted to get into great depth, which I couldn't really do at the magazine in terms of length, but to get into great depth on this subject and tell stories because people learn best through storytelling. And um, what a great opportunity to study the lives of 12 people, tell their stories better understand them, their internal struggles, their um, troubles and their triumphs, and educate people about mental health um, through these very, very human stories. Um, so that was the inspiration. It was, it was tell, tell about people's lives and let's learn about what we all encounter every day with each other, family members, friends, and even ourselves. You, you know, I, I teach psychology and I'm a psychologist myself. So normally... I think people learn about psychology through textbooks and classes and, and maybe case studies of um, people who have actually been de-identified. So your approach is quite different because you're taking real people and people that we all know or that um, we all know most of them, perhaps. So what is unique then about writing about the psychology of a public figure? Right. That's a great question. Now, public figures are often known very, very superficially. So Marilyn Monroe, one of the characters in the book, I mean, I think I, for one, and probably a lot of people are very familiar with her public persona, her appearance on stage and what she looked like and sort of that aura that she had and that, you know, sort of sparkling um, presence. And yet, you know, pull back this, pull back that curtain. And she really um, struggled so much. She had so many difficulties throughout her life. And I think, um, you know, telling these stories through public figures gives people an entree. They're interested in these people because they know them at some level. Abraham Lincoln, you know, Betty Ford, George Gershwin, all the people I wrote about, people know at some level, but they don't really, really um, have probably not had the experience of of sort of going deep into their lives and their stories. So I think by, by public figures give you an opportunity to educate in a way that just a random case study in a medical journal is not going to do that. That um, is a, a, a respectable and, and 
greatly needed way of educating um, professionals and better understanding a clinical condition um, and looking at case studies. But to educate a broader population, to get to readers who are never going to pick up a medical journal, um, this way of educating is, is, I think, very inviting and in many ways very comforting um, because people recognize, wow, these are, these are famous people. I had no idea that they struggle with a lot of the same things I am familiar with or my family members are. So coming from the world of journalism, how did you become interested in psychology and, and, and particularly in, and I don't know what you would call it, but the area of mental health illness or psychopathology? How, how did you develop a curiosity for that? Well, you know, at Newsweek, where I was writing, I had I had worked on many stories about mental health and psychology, um, and really dating back to my childhood, I was always interested in the mind. I was always interested in people's feelings. I often spent too much time anticipating what somebody might have, somebody might react, or what was somebody thinking. It was it was something that resonated with me. I thought about it a lot. I was interested in it. Um, I thought about, in fact, going to medical school and, and maybe studying psychology or psychiatry, but I ended up on the writing track, which was my great love. And I was able in this book and through my other work to really um, investigate these areas that interest me so much and and then write about them. So in that sense, it's, it's something that has always resonated with me. And um, I just find when you think about, I mean, I wrote many articles about things like heart disease or um, diabetes or, or disorders um, of the physical body that affect so many people. And those are fascinating and, and important. The brain, though, offers this entree into a universe where there is still so much to learn and there's so much exciting research going on. And there are so many questions, and it's so human. It, it's all about our lives, and it just captivates me. Now, in a minute, we're, I, I want to get into some of these figures and, and sort of deep dive. But before we do that, was there a particular person that you started researching first? Or, or did you go about sort of researching them simultaneously? How did that work? How was your process? Right. I did a lot of simultaneous research because I had a deadline that I had to meet and I needed to gather information um, pretty much at all times and continue, even if I was perhaps, you know, writing about my uh, chapter on Marilyn Monroe, I was researching um, another person at the same time or getting inspiration through reading. And I spent a lot of time um, looking at biographies. I mean, I was in the library looking at biographies of people and trying to get ideas and think about who would be interesting to talk about. And, and was there a condition that would, would um, that had been written about already medically by experts that I could explore? Um, so it was a real process of gathering information, talking to experts, getting ideas, you know, diving into historical records, both medical records and old biographies and autobiographies. Um, and I did a lot of that at the same time, kind of juggling it. Um, and I would carve out time for writing when, when um, a deadline was coming up for a chapter. Um, so it really, until the end, um, even the last few, I was still trying to, to make sure that this was the person I really wanted to write about. And, and I could have done a few more chapters, but I decided... 12 seemed like a good number. Was there someone who almost made it into the book, but who ended up not? No, there were a number of people who almost did. And in fact, one of the um, ones it was Van Gogh. I was really interested in, mm -hmm. in him and particularly thinking about bipolar, which had been raised numerous times. But 
In fact, a new study or a new uh, meeting has apparently just happened where a number of um, experts have gathered to talk about Van Gogh and and the uh, conclusion is some kind of psychosis. Um, he didn't make it in and a couple of others didn't make it in because I just felt I couldn't nail it down well enough or there wasn't enough information that had already been put forth by the experts. So I could see that making sure that what you had to say was backed by science, was backed by um, documented evidence, uh, or maybe in some cases even the the figure's own admissions and, and own speaking about their condition, that that was solid. Right. That was, one, that was really the driving factor above everything else. Um, wanted to make sure that I wasn't assigning labels in any kind of flippant way or just sort of out of a box. I mean, that, that, that's one of the things I fight against in terms of trying to chip away at stigma, but to do it in a way where these reports had been published, um, experts had proposed theories on these, these figures in the book, or in several cases, they had talked themselves. So, so Diana, Princess Diana talked about her bulimia and uh, Betty Ford spoke openly about Addiction. So that, that, that was the driving factor. Um, there were other elements that I wanted to make sure made the book interesting and readable, um, a real evolution in history. So the characters range from um, 1809, when both Lincoln and Darwin were born on the very same day in February, all the way to uh, the death of Betty Ford. So 200 years, um, 1800s, 1900s, a real span of history, which also allowed me to kind of look at uh, the evolution of our understanding of the mind and diagnoses and treatment. Um, and then also give people a range of livelihoods to think about. So in each case, the person is doing something different. There's Warhol, the painter. There's um, Marilyn Monroe, the Hollywood actress. There's Frank Lloyd Wright, the architect. Each one comes from a very different kind of background. And I think that gives a sense to readers, um, the message being to some degree, this is this, this affects everyone, that um, troubles in the mind, whatever they may be and whatever you want to call them, um, really do affect us all. And so giving people that sense of, a diversity within these livelihoods um, was another goal. And, and so all of those factored into who I finally selected. So let's get into some of these folks. Was there someone who was particularly difficult to write about or difficult to find out about? A lot of them um, in some ways were difficult. Um, so there's 12 people in the book that are profiled and there's 12 different conditions. Each one is a different condition. Um, one of the ones I wrote about is transgender. And in that case, um, probably the least known figure named Christine Jorgensen, who was the first widely known American to seek transgender um, um, treatment way back in 1950. And that chapter, I would say, was the hardest to write because um, even now, the language around um, the condition is, is changing almost, you know, on a, on a continual basis, how to describe it. Um, there's controversy about whether it belongs in the um, diagnostic manual or not. And, and that's a really interesting question um, in and of itself. Um, checking, checking back into the history of, of the evolution of understanding um, transgender throughout history was, it was challenging because there was a lot of, um, you know, a lot of information to try to find and then a lot of trying to resolve um, some of the difficult challenges with language. What do you call it? What is it called today? And what was it called in the past? That was a hard one. Um, others were more forthcoming in the sense that, uh, let's say, 
Betty Ford wrote two autobiographies. Uh, so there was a lot of information that came directly from her. Frank Lloyd Wright left behind um, some uh, an autobiography and, and lots of letters and interesting um, reflections that I could draw on. And as did, for example, Einstein, lots of letters and, and people can read these online. And it's so interesting. You get a real perspective on him from his own personal writing as well as Darwin. Um, and you can read some of Darwin's health history, his own little health journal that he kept. Um, so, so that it varied from person to person. So I, I want to go back to Christine Jorgensen because I, I agree with you that she might be the figure who is, is least recognizable to people. So what, what do you think people can learn from her story? No, I think it's, it's a, um, it's such a relevant story today when, when, um, Caitlyn Jenner, um, when, when her evolution came out and she was now Caitlyn Jenner, the person that we all knew as this athlete, um, Bruce Jenner in the past, it sort of resonates as this area that's really, um, come to the fore that's developing and changing in so many ways. But I think people can learn from a story of Christine Jurgensen who goes back decades. To, I mean, to me, the bravery with which she um, confronted her own feelings and her situation. She was somebody who was, as a child, identified with what would have been considered sort of the female kinds of things. I mean, you know, she, she liked the toys that her sister was playing with. She didn't feel comfortable um, as a boy. She never did. She didn't like the boys' camp she went to. She um, had all of these feelings within herself, and yet she had nowhere to turn. She had no um, contemporary um, people that she could look at or talk to or go on the Internet and call up stories and interviews the way people can today. Um, with her, it was a personal quest, and she was a determined person. She wanted to figure out what was going on and resolve her situation, embrace who she believed she was. And to me, that is a story of just immense bravery, um, you know, fortitude, um, and real, you know, just um, incredible um, passion for, for, you know, for the self and for figuring out who am I? And even if I can't, even if somebody isn't going to easily tell me who I am, I'm going to keep working at it. And there she was, you know, way back then, um, taking this trip off. She sailed off to Copenhagen. She she found a doctor who was willing to explore all of this with her. She ended up getting treatment, um, and she lived the rest of her life as a woman. And she also, um, you know, it was there was a lot of joking around when she came back to the U.S. Um, in those early years, in the early 50s. And she sort of rose above it um, by being comfortable with who she was and um, just going out there and doing her thing. She did some performing and even joked um, herself, but in a way that um, made it easier for, for people to sort of realize she's just a, she's a human being at the bottom. At the end of the day, that's who she is. It's such an interesting story because this is someone who was born with a penis and assigned um, sex of male at birth and actually served as a GI before taking off to Europe to pursue sex reassignment. And if I got the story right, she didn't tell her family or her loved ones what she was going off to Europe to do. She had found this doctor um, who was willing and very interested to administer hormone, hormone therapy and later surgery. And the family didn't know that George had now become Christine until I believe she wrote a letter home, right? 
announcing right. that she had made this change and then just sort of showed up, came back home as Christine. Do you know, do you know how the family and loved ones responded to that? You know, they, they were, as far as I can tell, the response was fairly positive. There was not, um, the kind of, you know, shock that you might have expected to the degree that there was negative, um, emotions involved. There may have been at some personal level that may not have been documented, but her parents stuck by her. Um, and, you know, even, even to the very end, um, it was really remarkable, I think. And, you know, just looking at the, the letter, I can read it, uh, just the quotes from it because it's so powerful. She, sure, she wrote, that'd be great. Yeah. She, so it was, um, it was uh, right, as you say, before she came back and she wrote a letter saying, I have changed, changed very much as my photos will show, but I want you to know that I'm an extremely happy person and, and that the real me, not the physical me, has not changed. Um, she wrote, nature made a mistake, which I have corrected, and I am now your daughter. So wow. pretty powerful, yeah. Wow. You know, in, in some ways, the story is a kind of, as, as many of these stories, a kind of timestamp that shows us how much things have changed since then. But, you know, I got to say in some ways or in other ways, it, it makes me wonder how much things have or have not changed because um, the European doctors felt obligation to treat Jorgensen because it would be wrong to let her live in such anguish any longer. That's really progressive even right now. I mean, even now there are still doctors who, when they're approached by the child and parents where the child is adamant about um, transitioning, some doctors adopt the wait-and-see model or even worse, adopt the you-can-do-whatever-you-want-until-you're-18 model, and, and they don't show the same kind of unwavering support as did Jorgensen's doctors back then. Um, I, I wonder what you think about that. Right. I mean, I think it's really, um, you know, the field evolves in these fits and starts, I guess. And, and in her case, um, she knew she had to, to, to leave, um, the U.S. to, to get that treatment. And now there does seem to be, I mean, clearly, I think what people now have, um, that they didn't have in her era, as I mentioned, is just this openness, at least to talk about it. And, and people can go on the internet and find support groups or, or, you know, point to these, people who have pioneered this area for them that have come out and spoken publicly about it. And I mentioned a few other people um, in the book that, that are really open about what they went through. And, and um, so, so today that's a big change in terms of treatment. Um, I guess it's just an, an, an evolution that sometimes can be slower than it should be, but there's also careful consideration. And I think um, that makes sense in, in a case like this to, um, to make sure that, the person is really well evaluated and that there's careful thought about treatment. So I guess sometimes that can go one way or the other in terms of how slow or fast it happens. You know, one of the things that I think you do really well in the book and, and consistently in every single chapter is describe the figures, childhood, the, the, where they were born, where they grew up, who the parents were, what the parents upbringings were like even, I mean, you, you take a really thorough history, maybe more thorough than, than some therapists would, which is, which is really great. Why did you feel it was important to, um, to include uh, a thorough review of their childhood? And, and I'm wondering if there was a particular figure whose childhood really stood out to you. 
Right. Well, I, I know from reporting and talking to the experts and reading about all of these conditions that, um, you know, the impact of childhood experiences is very, very important. Um, and then even in just reading about the conditions, let's say borderline personality disorder, uh, that, that uh, childhood experiences came up or depression, you know, um, from reading the medical literature that loss of a parent, for example, in early childhood can, uh, can lead to depression or anxiety later in life. Abraham Lincoln um, had that experience. He lost his mother when he was very young, and um, as did Charles Darwin, who lost his mother as a child. Um, so that seemed to affect them in, in a way and be one of the components of what, um, you know, who they were as they as they grew. And in terms of the one that seemed really to resonate is, is this borderline personality case, which is Marilyn Monroe. And there are many experts in the field who have looked at Marilyn Monroe and said she is, you know, really a case study for this condition. And she had such a difficult childhood. So she was born um, and really given up within a couple of weeks of her birth to a foster family. Her mother, who it turns out suffered from mental health issues herself, could not take care of, of Marilyn, who was named Norma Jean as a, as a baby and as a child. Um, she went to the foster family. She stayed with them for about seven years. Her mother would come visit her, um, but didn't, there was, there was some confusion there early on as to who, you know, who that was. And she didn't feel, she talked about not ever being, Marilyn Monroe herself talked about not feeling that embrace of family, that love. When she, when she was about seven, her mother took her home, tried to keep her in the home with her had a uh, breakdown within some number of months after Marilyn uh, or Norma Jean came back. And, and as a child, um, Marilyn Monroe watched her mother have this breakdown coming down the steps in the house and then be taken off to a hospital where she was diagnosed with, with paranoid schizophrenia. Um, and, you know, she talked about um, how she at some point said, I seem to be a whole superstructure with no foundation. Mm-hmm. She didn't, she didn't have that, um, scaffolding within her to, to grab onto. She looked constantly, what was her identity? Who was she? She found it on the stage, but that was, you know, think about that. I mean, that was the stage. That was the limelight. That was the people um, watching you. But, be, but behind that, she didn't have that kind of um, that foundation and, and she sought it out. And so it seemed that a lot of this came from this very troubled and difficult childhood where she did not have, stable relationships. She did not feel the love. She, she talked about wanting, you know, those hugs and kisses and the love that she didn't get. Um, and it, and it left this hole. And so to me, that was, um, such an important story in terms of how childhood, um, can shape, um, the way a person feels about him or herself. You know, I, I want to bring attention to a specific aspect of Marilyn Monroe's story. First of all, borderline personality disorder is is a diagnosis that sometimes people throw it around, but um, casually. But it is a very serious condition, and it it, it really is marked by a, 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 an intense instability of self and instability in in relationships, um, a lack of felt. Uh, connection or, or solid connection with others. But, you know, in my experience, I've also learned that a lot of times with borderline personality disorder, people with this disorder, for them being believed is a core issue. Um, many of these patients, they come in not only with horrible experiences, as did Marilyn Monroe, but with a history of either not being believed by others or of having their version of reality sort of challenged by the people who perpetrated those experiences. 
I think you kind of hint at that um, in your depiction of Marilyn Monroe, that sometimes, that even though Monroe uh, said that she had been abused, I, I can't remember if it was by her uncle or by a, a foster father or, or who it was. Um, but it, if I read correctly, you seem to hint that people didn't always believe Marilyn Monroe or thought that she exaggerated her traumas. Um, do you know if she felt like nobody believed her? That's a great question. Um, I think she felt very frustrated. And I, and I would imagine it's probably not a stretch to say that she she may have had that feeling. Um, she didn't get the treatment, you know, that she would get now. I mean, that's a really interesting piece of the whole story of Meryl Monroe. Um, the point you make about not being believed, um, when I talked to one of the experts I talked to said, you know, it's so important to validate the experiences because um, patients, borderline patients are often not treated as equals. So people will um, tiptoe around them um, and and not really, they were considered sort of the hot potato patient. Nobody wanted to treat them because they are, they're so difficult, certainly back in the day. Um, and this clinician told me that, you know, treating them as equals and validating those experience is very important to the patient. It, it's sort of rewarding to them. Um, at the end of the day, my, my experience reporting this, what I found out about the treatment was that, you know, doing that and acknowledging the past experiences is critical, but then so is moving on and trying to um, give patients skills that can help them um, get through day to day, you know, treat them as an equal and say, yes, you suffered and there's no doubt about that. Now let's figure out a way that you, you know, you, a person who, who, who can do this, you can do this and let's give you some skills. So um, you have much more experience than I do in terms of treating patients, but that was what I had, had taken in from um, the experts I spoke to. And it was it's just such an interesting piece of the whole story. You know, it seems to me that this book, I, I, I don't know how you'll feel about this, but that this book might also be kind of a statement on the dangers of celebrity because one of the things I took away is that in many of the cases, it seems like someone's celebrity status led to much enabling. You know, I'm thinking about Betty Ford, how her doctors never said no to her, Andy Warhol and his all his rules, his entourages, and even Frank Lloyd Wright and his devoted followers, the people who stuck by him, even when he didn't pay them. Um, even Diana seems to have been done in in large part because the public needed to see her in a certain way. Um, did, did you, do you have a, a thought after doing all this research and writing this book about celebrity and whether it might have, how it affected the course of these people's lives and of their condition? Yes, I think that is so important. Um, and it really does come out in a number of these cases. And it's, it's so unfortunate. Um, but being a celebrity, of course, gives you this sort of, level of fame and this level of sort of hands off because there you are at this height of um, power and achievement and everything else. Um, you, you know, you mentioned Betty Ford and there, you know, I, I remember, um, in, you know, I talk about in the chapter how she felt that, you know, doctors gave her more medication, more pain medication, which she was becoming addicted to because they didn't want to say no. Um, in Howard Hughes's case, um, that he was, this, he had this, these issues with obsessive compulsive disorder, terrible, terrible obsessions um, and compulsive behaviors. And um, one of the doctors I spoke to about his case said, you know, he, he most people who suffer from OCD need to earn a paycheck and support their family and, and, and deal with life. They have to function somehow. I mean, they have to figure out a way 
to function. Um, whereas Howard Hughes, you know, he by the end of his life, holed up in his sort of caves he created with these rules and regulations about how to uh, open a can of fruit. And the people who served him and worked for him did this because it was Howard Hughes and he was telling them and um, they had to do it. Frank Lloyd Wright, as you mentioned, with his um, what I talked about, uh, narcissism with him, narcissistic personality disorder, um, doing what he demanded um, despite the sort of overriding sense of sort of I, I'm right and you're wrong because of his achievements and his fame and, and everything that, um, you know, even even the clients living in his homes who were told, not you know, don't bring your own furniture, don't hang stuff on the wall. It's all the way I design it and, and um, sort of catering to those demands. So I think that is a really, really um, important underlying point. And um, it's hard to know how would you, what do you do about that? How do you, um, and you'd be a lucky celebrity to get a, a really honest treatment, both from a clinician or, or a professional, as well as from the people around you. You know, I, I, I'm curious about Howard Hughes a little bit more because uh, for those who don't know, he had what we would now call OCD. I'm not sure that that was available, that diagnosis, that concept was available to him at the time. But for, for people who may not be familiar, he did not have what um, what we would call OCPD, which, which is Obsessive Compulsive Personality Disorder, which is kind of a milder form of OCD. Um, and the kind of thing that lots of people have and, and, and that they jokingly call OCD. No, Howard Hughes had the more severe version and had some real serious symptoms. What were the symptoms that stood out to you the most? Well, he was very, very uh, fearful or obsessive about germs. I mean, he had a very, very uh, difficult time with things coming in and, and po- you know, d- making him sick and taping up windows and, and doing um, stuff with masking tape. He had Kleenex was his big defense against the world. And he, he, he wrote these memos to people about um, what they needed to do. He, he had a hearing aid um, that he wore. He had a little bit of a hearing issue. And there was a memo about, um, so there, here's how you take the hearing aid um, cord out of the bathroom cabinet, and he had to use something like 15 Kleenexes, you know, between opening the doorknob and grabbing the thing. And um, newspapers had to come to him in a stack of three so that he could take the middle one, which wouldn't have been infected with anything. Um, and that way it would, you know, keep him clean. So his, his, his overriding issue seemed to be concern about germs and, and pollution, you know, to him. Um, I was, I was looking at the, the, the chapter again, and, and I could read a couple of lines too from there just about, yes, please. Uh, you know, he had <laughs> these painstaking instructions, which included a three page uh, memo on how to open a can of fruit. So here's a little bit that's, you know, from the book, one step required that his assistants wash the can with soap first and then scrub it quote from a point two inches below the top of the can. The label was to be soaked and removed, the can cleaned with a sterile brush over and over until all particles of dust, pieces of paper label, and in general, all sources of contamination have been removed. Serving the fruit mandated a new set of rules requiring the server to always keep his head and upper body at least one foot away from the can and to present it with, quote, absolutely no talking, coughing, clearing of the throat, or any movement whatsoever of the lips. So you get a sense of how intense um this was and how absolutely um sort of just paralyzing the whole thing was and the people who served him did it wow well what makes ocd unique is that 
the people who have it and who who perform these kinds of rituals they they usually know that their rituals and the beliefs underlying them are irrational and and they feel trapped because they want to stop it they 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 know how nonsensical it is and that they yet they can't help it do do we know if that's the case with howard hughes do we know if he knew how irrational and over the top this was yeah that's that's a little bit mysterious with hughes although um it's clear that you know it was very clear to to people around him and he seemed so um you know, paralyzed by it. That's hard to imagine. He didn't have, you know, understand to some degree what was happening. He didn't leave behind. I couldn't um, find anything. I don't know that there is anything where he actually expresses that himself, but there also isn't a lot that he left behind like that. So there were these memos that, that um, exist, but um, there wasn't a lot personally coming from him on how he assessed what was going on. But it, it seemed like, um, there, it just, it just seemed that there had to be some level of understanding as he, you know, as he watched his life, he, he became, um, so reclusive and, uh, so, so completely isolated by this. But it's, it's a, it's a thing I'd like to learn more about, in fact, because, um, how much, is there a way to find out how much he knew? I, I couldn't, I couldn't determine that, um, for sure. So who, who else stood out to you? Wow, so, so many of them. And Warhol, the title character of the book, Andy Warhol, was a hoarder. Um, you know, he stood out because there were so many things I didn't know about him and so many things I didn't appreciate about him. Um, he also had a troubled childhood in the sense that he was a, he was a sickly kid. He was, he, um, spent a lot of time at, at home. He was not comfortable in social situations. Um, he had physical things that, that bothered him. He had difficulty with his skin. Um, and he ended up, you know, being this unbelievable, you know, his art was revolutionary in the sense of transforming um, this whole pop art thing that he that he did. Um, I did not know that he left behind <clears throat> about 600 boxes of stuff. And these are um, all at the Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh. And it's a wonderful place to visit if anybody has the time to go and you can see remnants of a lot of these uh, boxes. I went myself to where they actually took one of the boxes onto a stage at the museum and they opened it up as if it was sort of like a scene out of a magic show where they had a couple of um, catalogers up there who had blue gloves on. They were, you know, going to go into this box um, and pull things out of this box. And so there it was up on the stage and, and, and they started pulling these things out and he left behind everything from um, old Christmas cards to toothbrush boxes, um, pizza dough, past due bills, um, anything and everything in these boxes that he sort of swept stuff off of his desk and threw it in there. And then beyond that left his townhouse after he died was found to just contain um rooms where you couldn't enter. They were so cluttered and crowded. Uh, 175 cookie jars. He was an absolute uh, collector to the point of no return. Um, and in his case, talking about something bothering you, he actually acknowledged that um, he didn't like um, the, the clutter. He said at some point, I think everyone should live in a big empty space. Um, it can be a small space as long as it's clean and empty. He wrote this in, in one of his works. And um, said at some point, I'm so sick of the way I live of all the junk and always dragging more home. And yet he, he felt this, whatever, this compulsion to do it. He collected not only things and stuff, but he collected um, 
conversations. He taped everyday conversations and amassed hours and hours of this, these tapes. Um, and I sort of made the observation as I was reading about him and learning about him that he even, you know, he collected, uh, everything was about numbers and multitudes with him. He, he, he went, went around with these entourages of people. It was always these groups. And then in his work, he um, produced these multiple images. Um, it just, there was sort of this, this need, um, you know, to be uh, somehow surrounded by, by, by stuff, by multitudes, by a lot of um, things. So I was really surprised by the level to which um, he uh, did hoard and, and did struggle to some degree with, with that. And, and I guess like with Howard Hughes or, or like with people who complain of their OCD symptoms, with Andy Warhol, what you said is one of the things that fascinated me the most, that he knew that, that, that this was impeding his life and that he wanted or wished that he could do without these things, and yet he couldn't. So that, I kind of wondered about that. I'm going to put my psychoanalyst hat on for a moment, if you don't mind, because you mentioned that one interesting aspect of his life is that his mother lived with him for a very long time. I can't remember if it was up until her, his, and up until her death, but I started wondering if his conflicted feelings over his material um, possessions, which he wanted to get rid of, but couldn't figure out how to get rid of or couldn't part with, if they were, might somehow have been a displacement of his conflicted feelings over his mother's living with him. Uh, Allah, I wish I could get rid of her, but I must keep her. Um, Do do you have any thoughts about that? That's so interesting. um, You know, I think it's a really interesting theory. I I would would need to do more research into that relationship, which really wasn't, um, never became that clear to me other than, yes, she did come to live with him. And even in the early years of his career was sort of his, his um, assistant. She did some of the, the handwriting on some of his works. She had beautiful handwriting. Um, so he relied on her um, at some level. And yet he had this very colorful other life that, um, you know, really was so secretive at some level and yet so flamboyant at other levels in terms of the parties and the going down to studio 54 and the parties that took place at, um, the factory where he did his artwork. Um, so yeah, I mean, I could see there being, yes, you know, did he, was it a good thing that she was there for until her death for so many years? Um, I don't know. I mean, he, you know, when I, I, I was thinking about too, when he talked about his, he had this tape recorder I mentioned about, um, taping these conversations and he called it that he said he was married to it and he called that tape recorder his wife. Mm. Uh, it was almost as if, um, and he said, in fact, the acquisition of my tape recorder really finished whatever emotional life I might have had, but I was glad to see it go. I guess that's when he, when he, uh, you know, it was like these things replaced, um, his, his emotional, um, complex feelings or, or whatever, but, uh, a lot of, a lot of really interesting stuff there. And I, I like your theory. I mean, it, it seems like it could be true. Why did you pick him as the title character? Well, we had a lot of discussion about the title and, um, the idea was to get a f- person's name. So it was, and a, and a condition. So that it was clear to people picking up the book that this was going to be a book about, um, a person, a life as well as a condition. And at the end of the day, his, um, 
name resonates in a very contemporary way to some degree, so that the people can, can very clearly envision Andy Warhol and his art. And hoarding is a more contemporary diagnosis, so it's only recently become an actual diagnosis in, um, if you're looking at the DSM. So, so those two things made it kind of um, a lively t- title versus something like um, Lincoln and his depression or Howard Hughes and OCD. Um, Andy Warhol was a hoarder, gives you that very immediate sense of um, what the book is sort of trying to get at. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a catchy title. I don't think it really tells the story of the book in the sense that it's, it's, it's catchy, not serious, but it sort of gets at the idea. So people will pick up the book, say, oh, what, what is this? And then maybe start reading it. <laughs> I, I agree. It's a very catchy title. Um, one of the things that I think the book also helps us to understand is that having some kind of, and, and I kind of don't like this word, but having some kind of condition or some, some kind of unique way that your, your psychology is organized, it has its downsides, but it also has its upsides. Um, is there a particular person in the book that helps illustrate that point that, that some people actually had special gifts because of their condition? Yes. And I love this whole piece of the, of the book and the study of all of this, because I think it, it's so important for people to take away um, from learning about these conditions and, and, and how there is this sort of um, duality that, that um, comes with it. So a, a number of them show this. I, I studied George Gershwin and I write about him um, after seeing a psychiatrist in New York who is both um, a psychiatrist as well as a Juilliard trained pianist who does these wonderful performances of composers where he looks at the minds of composers and one of the ones he looked at is is Gershwin and he proposed this theory that if Gershwin were around today as a young child in kindergarten um, exhibiting the behaviors he did as a young child he would almost certainly be referred to a child um, counselor a child psychologist who would probably have assessed him for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder ADHD Um, and this is because uh, Gershwin was a rambunctious child. He didn't sit still. He skipped school. He got into street fights. He didn't always do his homework. He didn't pay attention. All of these characteristics that people recognize today um, as possible characteristics of ADHD. So there's no saying here that he had it. It's just this interesting theory. um, And it speaks to the way we live now that had he been alive today, he probably would have been assessed and he might've been diagnosed. But when you think about Gershwin's energy. He lived a very short life. He died in his thirties. Um, but his extraordinary energy, which never abated, he, he would, um, tap dance while he was waiting for elevators. He cracked peanuts during rehearsals. Um, he could not stop moving. He stayed up late. A lot of the times he would write and play into the night. Um, he poured that energy. It came frantically through his head. Sometimes he said he couldn't catch the ideas fast enough, but look what he produced. I mean, he left behind hundreds of, um, pieces of music and composition. And so in his case, you could argue that that um, abundant energy served his creativity. So I think that's one example that I find really interesting. Um, another one is Abraham Lincoln, who many people have theorized about depression. And Lincoln himself um, talked about being melancholy. The, the mem- memories of him at the time by his contemporaries talk about him as this extraordinarily melancholy guy. And he he struggled with suicide attempts early in life. Um, 
all sorts of characteristics that some people believe may have been clinical depression. And yet at the same time, there's interesting um, thoughts about how depression can sometimes give you these insights. It can make you more realistic. It can make you more sympathetic. It can make you more of a clear thinker on um, some of the negative things that he encountered and dealt with, like the Civil War. So maybe that um, those depressive qualities that he endured also gave him um, this, this clarity. And in fact, with, with Lincoln, the, one of the, some of the ways he got through it, one of the ways was he was a phenomenal storyteller and he was very funny and he used humor as a way, as he said, to quote, vent his moods. He, mm-hmm. he turned to humor and he enriched other people's lives through that. And he also, um, turned to work. He, he talked about work is what you do when, when, when you get down. And so he pulled, you know, he poured himself into being president, to doing what he needed to do to, to, um, to, to making himself this, this um, incredible public figure. So in that case, you know, that was really interesting to me. Then there's Darwin, who I, I wrote about anxiety. He was diagnosed with a million, you know, by many different conditions, but anxiety seemed to pervade um, his life. And in his case, the perfectionism and the sort of rumination that came with some of those um, issues also contributed to the um, quality of his work. I mean, he, he um, responded to, uh, to some degree to that anxiety by making sure everything he wrote about and the origin of species was, was accurate and it was backed up and he knew what he was talking about, all that stuff. So there are these qualities that motivated him to some degree. You could be paralyzed by fear or you can be um, motivi- motivated in that, that concept that, that too little is not good and too much is not good, but maybe somewhere in between is actually... Um, somewhere positive. So I, I found that really um, incredibly interesting in, in so many of these stories. Those are three very interesting figures. And I, I want to share something going back to George Gershwin. When I read that chapter, you know, with all of them, I, I noticed that reading your chapters made me want to go online and learn more about these people. And with George Gershwin, as I was reading the chapter, I, I, I wanted to to hear the music again. And so I actually um, went into my my music and I found Rhapsody in Blue and I read the chapter while listening to Rhapsody in Blue in the background. And I really recommend that to our listeners and to your readers to do that because when I did that, I suddenly got it on a visceral level. I got how possibly chaotic his mind could feel and how quickly it moved and how much he would, how quickly he would change direction. And yet how beautiful it was and, and how even in that chaos and the noise, there was, there was something um, very valuable and, and very beautiful that could, that could come from it. And um, I'm really glad that the world got to see that. Um, have you had a similar experience listening to his music? Oh yeah. I, I, in fact also was listening to it while I was writing and I couldn't help but be inspired by it. And, Hearing all of the, the you know the build up in that piece to the to the to the sort of frenetic almost at times um, pace of it, um, it's just it's just really so inspiring and it really does speak to that. It's as if he's you, you hear you, you can almost relive Gershwin himself and, and envision him um, playing it and and hearing that. And I think that um, in his case the. You know th- that creativity and that that um, abundant energy just all you know kind of whirled together in this in this way that produced this this wonderful music that we can all listen to 
now and still enjoy. And I, I agree, everybody, everybody should listen to it. It's just wonderful. Do you think, you know, he didn't have uh, a diagnosis of ADHD at the time because that diagnosis was not available to him then. And, you know, sometimes diagnoses come with a stigma as, as well as um, the advantage of having a name for what you're going through. So it's got pluses and minuses. Do you think if he would have had a diagnosis of ADHD, a name for it, do you think he would have been as successful as, do you think he would have been as, um, as inspiring? It's such a good question. It's such an important question. Um, I think you can look at it in different ways. I think, um, you know, if you're a child, like, let's say he's the child with the diagnosis, um, you know, and then let's say he gets prescribed medication, Ritalin or some other medication to help him focus, um, would then that energy become to a degree that the, the music would not have been as abundantly um, energetic as it was. I mean, it's a question we'll never know. I mean, I even pose it in the book. Would we have Rhapsody in Blue if he, if he'd been diagnosed and treated, you know, today? Um, I think, you know, I've talked to experts who talk themselves. I mean, a number of people in these fields suffer themselves or have these conditions um, themselves. And we'll talk about the great value of treatment, of diagnosis, of, of, um, of doing that so that they can then achieve their own um, work um, themselves. And so I think it's always going to be, it almost has to be a case of individual um, situation. Um, I would worry that had, you know, had he gotten a diagnosis that it may have, um, he may not have worked as quickly as he did, or he may not have gotten to the point of, of sort of doing what he needed to do, because maybe that would have been an interruption that might not have, um, kept him going on his sort of, you know, frenetic journey to produce music. So, um, on the other hand, people suffer, um, and, and struggle with, you know, conditions that can be treated and, um, in some cases by medication, some cases not. And, and, you know, I, and they have told me that, um, not treating isn't an option that, that the reason they are able to produce and, and do their work in the field is because they are um, diagnosed and they are treated. So I think it depends on the condition, on the um, level of impairment of the condition, um, and then on how it's treated. I, I feel like this issue kind of comes up with Albert Einstein as well, because by by today's standards, he might meet criteria for Asperger's, even though we don't um, technically use that word anymore. But it sort of raises the question, well, you know, for whom was his isolation a problem? Was it a problem for him or was it a problem for those around him? Because the same thing, would he have been able to produce the brilliant work that he did had he been, quote unquote, treated for his condition? And you also write in the book that um, currently there are people in the Asperger's community that are a bit afraid about the um, neurological genetic possibilities for uh, preventing Asperger's because that might get rid of an entire community of uh, geniuses. Uh, What do you think about that? Right. I think that um, also is really interesting with, with Einstein. He did have these um, moments, many moments of just complete sort of withdrawal into his head. And there were all these recollections about that. There was an artist I, I wrote about in the book who went to visit him to do a painting of him and how he was so inside his head. He barely noticed this guy was there. There was just kind of a, he was disheveled. He didn't, he wasn't prepared for um, encountering a, another human being. He was in his head completely. Um, family members describe that about him, and yet that was where he did his work. That was how he 
made those connections um, that got us to the theory of relativity, got him to the theory of relativity for the rest of us. And so um, I think it's, it's a really important, um, you know, question to ask, how do you assess a situation like that? Um, and Asperger's like, like any of these conditions, everything is on a spectrum or a continuum. And so where, um, if it is uh, affecting the person's life and they are unable to be um, functioning in the world and they are miserably isolated and all of those things, then, I think you look at it one way with Einstein, you know, we talked about indulgence before with, with Hughes and others with Einstein, there was some level of that too, in the sense that um, not necessarily in a negative way, but he was helped along. So with things that he was not good at, which included um, he wasn't very tactful a lot of the time and he um, would get lost walking home from, from work in, at Princeton. And he, um, I mentioned he was disheveled. He didn't care about his public appearance. And there are a lot of really interesting recollections of, people helping him, his wife reminding him to, to, you know, change his pants or bring a new pair of pants on his trip. And the, the secretary, his assistant at Princeton, you know, sometimes going out and guiding him back to the house, that there were ways in which he was helped along. And had he not been so brilliant um, and, and dealt with some of these same characteristics, um, would, you know, how, how would he have gotten to where he got to? So, um these are all questions I think in some ways unanswerable. And I really think in each case, it's such an individual um, case, but I think no matter what, every instance has to be very carefully thought through and and very carefully studied so that there's not a, you know, just a a knee jerk reaction to um, either assign a a diagnosis or assign a treatment or whatever it might be. You know, we could talk for for hours longer about all of these folks. Um, but I think what I really want to know now, Claudia, is whether you have – what have you learned or how – have you been changed in some way by doing this research and writing this book? Well, um, I learned just an enormous amount about um, the struggles that human beings go through, that um, that there are hidden stories everywhere, that um, we are all connected to our own internal dramas in some way and to each other. Um, that people are often misjudged, that people are often um, stigmatized, and um, that is just so um, terrible. It should it should not be um, that there's a lot of fear around mental health conditions, and, and news headlines often provoke that, that there's a lot of educating to do. That in, in terms of in, encountering um, readers, you know, people are – I do book talks and people come up to me and are desperate to share stories. They want to talk about themselves or the, the family member who struggles with one or more of these conditions. And um, it's a burden to bear for everybody. And I think um, public airing of this is, is only a good thing. It can be done in an irresponsible way. I tried hard to do it in a really responsible way. But I think the, the end result of talking about these issues is um, – is a really is a, is a step toward um, chipping away at that stigma, better understanding, better just really recognition about um, the struggles we all face at the end of the day. So, I, you know, I could go on too. There's so much I learned, but it was really, um, really enriching and really, uh, and also in some ways, and, I, and readers have told me this too. It, it was to some degree comforting because. I think, um, especially you think about things like social media these days and Facebook, if you go on these things, you, you get a sense that people's lives are all rosy and wonderful and they're off on their next vacation to the Bahamas and they're posting their children's photos and they're, they're giving you a superficial sense of life that it's all, um, 
wonderful and they're highlighting these moments and, and we can embrace that and love that. But, you know, you're not hearing a lot about what goes on underneath and there's a lot of that too. And the struggles are what um, define us to some degree. And so I think that is all what I learned. <laughs> as, as did I, it really was an excellent book and I'm so glad that you wrote it. Um, before we go, what are you working on now? No, I'm looking at all sorts of aspects that come out of this book um, that I'm interested in. So I'm, I'm interested in, you mentioned autism and some of the issues around um, around that. I'm interested in, in um, savant syndrome, this idea that there are some people who have um, autism or characteristics, but then also have these incredibly brilliant um, capacities. I'm really interested in that. I'm looking at prodigies and how, what happens, who, who, what, what goes on there? Why, why does some people excel early in life. And I'm interested in all sorts of, of themes that come out of this book. And I'm, I'm um, working also on some, some freelance stories and thinking about a next, a next book. That, that sounds like a really interesting project, the idea of uh, uh, the savant. Um, so definitely I will want to hear about that uh, once it's finished. Again, the book is called Andy Warhol was a hoarder inside the minds of history's great personalities published by the National Geographic Society in 2016 by Claudia Cowell. Claudia, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. I, I enjoyed it greatly as well. <laughs>